This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The following podcast contains a bit of explicit material, but much, much more that is not explicit, just as a percentage. It's Wednesday, February 28th, 2018. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Yesterday, my thoughts turned to the chair of the Federal Reserve. I don't know. Maybe it's the temperate weather we've been experiencing in the East and a young man's fancies turned to Fed chairs. Probably not. I'm not that young a man and my fancies aren't that desiccated just yet. Anyway, Fed chairman named and that's where I was stuck. Wait, who's the Fed chairman? I couldn't remember the Fed chairman's name. I remembered key biographical details, like he wasn't one of the crazy candidates who were supposedly up for bid, centrist Republican. He served one of the Bushes, I think the earlier one. This is just my recollection. I also recall that he worked at some bipartisan policy center. By the way, I've since looked it up and the bipartisan policy center that I was thinking of is the bipartisan policy center. Kind of on the nose there, BPC. Anyway, his name, his name. Now, this wasn't a tip of the tongue type situation. I said to myself, you know, I really don't know the name. It's not that I can't recall the name. I've heard the name somewhere or other, but I flat out do. He is of a name I do not know. And for all my life, since I've been following the news and politics, I could always name the Fed chair. Janet Yellen, of course, before her, Ben Bernanke, famous for his oversight during the crash. Oh, Alan Greenspan. That guy was a household name in households with those leather chairs with winged sides. But I didn't know this guy and I felt bad. And I was thinking about it. Why was it crowded out? I mean, I still got space in my brain for most two guards in the NBA and Andy Serkis, but I couldn't remember the Fed chairman. And then I figured it out. This is why I couldn't remember him. It's because this important position, who should be among the, I don't know, 800 most important Americans that an informed newsy person like me knows, He was pushed down way past number 800 because of all these ancillary figures, all these peripheral associates, all of these various and sundry amorosi. John Kelly, right? John Kelly, that guy is top of mind every day. And you're saying to yourself, well, he's a major player. He's the chief of staff. All right. So Kelly replaced Reince Priebus, who we all knew and thought about. He's the president's second chief of staff. Know who Obama's second chief of staff was? Ed Rouse. Ed Rouse. Didn't know him? Didn't have to know him. Wasn't in the top 800. His last name might not even be pronounced Rouse. I don't know. And that's kind of the point. Who is in charge of communications in past administration? In this one, it's Sean Spicer and Anthony Scaramucci and Hope Hicks until maybe a second ago. The longest serving director of communications for a White House in my lifetime was David Demarest. He was George H.W. Bush's director of communications for more than three years. Didn't know his name then, don't know his name now. I don't have to know his name. The Trump administration is just making me think of so many people that I shouldn't have to think of. The office of the chief of staff, right under him on the organization chart, are the following people. Assistant to the president and senior counselor, 
Kellyanne Conway, assistant to the president and senior advisor, Jared Kushner, assistant to the president and senior advisor for policy, Stephen Miller, and this is how they actually list her, first daughter and advisor to the president, Ivanka Trump. I think about these people all the time. They should be people, I don't know, 600 to 2,040 of the people whose names I know. In the Obama administration, these positions roughly were Plouffe, Pfeiffer, Axelrod, Jarrett. Now, I know all those people, but I don't think any of them were in the top 800. You knew them if you paid attention to politics. If you're a Republican, you probably disliked them. You didn't spend so much time being engaged in knowing everything about them and worrying about them and thinking, how dare he scream at that CNN host or what's that one doing up to his eyes in debt to the Chinese? Okay, I guess this all comes down to the debate of uh, Trump and the massive distraction machine he's running. Is it tactic or accident? Is it foolish or devious? Is it three-dimensional chess or six-chambered Russian roulette? I will credit Brooke Gladstone. She sees it as I do. All he wants to do is dominate the ether. For reasons of ego, for reasons of strategy, might be smart, might be stupid, but he needs to dominate the ether, and dominate he does, and my not being able to recall the Fed chairman's name is an indication that it's going well. So much winning for Team Trump. And by the way, his name is Jerome Powell, and he goes by Jay. I hope this brief shout-out can reestablish him in the top 800. On the show today, I spiel about Dana Lash and Ben Shapiro's horrible arguments where they misuse statistics. Well, maybe I'm sugarcoating that. It's a little worse, really. But first, before we get into those uh, depths of quasi-intellect, let's talk to a professor of philosophy about philosophy. Christian B. Miller is here to talk about character and philosophy. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. So you know about the trade gap and, of course, the wage gap, but I've got a gap that's bigger than all of them. It's sort of like, uh, let's take, I'll make a metaphor, uh, a better, classier kind of gap. Like the gap is to retail. This gap would be like the Banana Republic is to the gap. What I'm talking about is the character gap. It goes right to our cores, and it's the title of a new book by Christian B. Miller. The Character Gap, How Good Are We?, as part of the very exciting Philosophy in Action series by Oxford, where they take philosophy and they throw it in our face and have us grapple with it. Hello. Hello, Christian Miller. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Absolutely. So when we talk about character, my definition, just thinking about it, if someone said, what's character? My kids, if my kids asked me what's character, I'd say, it's goodness, but consistent goodness, not just one-time goodness. It's our fundamental goodness, something like that. Is that a good definition? 
that's along the right track, I think. Uh, so I think of character as our kind of moral fiber, what makes us a moral person. And it's the kind of thing that leads us to think moral thoughts, to have moral feelings, and then ultimately to perform moral actions. The one wrinkle I would add to it, though, is that character can come in two forms, good form and a bad form. Right. So there's a good character, things like honesty, compassion, kindness, and so forth. But unfortunately, there's also the flip side, the vices, being a vicious person. So someone who is dishonest, cowardly, cruel, and the like. So, of course, we want to promote the good side of character, but we have to acknowledge the bad side of character, too. So it does seem to me that this is entirely subjective, entirely defined by our time period, our circumstance, our culture. But also, I would add to that, it doesn't really matter. Even if it is subjective, and even if we know that Gandhi and Hitler, who are the two guys on your book representing a continuum, even if we do know that they were shaped by different cultures, we could still engage in a discussion or a debate about their relative characters. I would agree with you in part. So I, like most philosophers, don't think morality is relative or completely subjective. So it's an interesting fact today that most philosophers are more on the side of believing that morality is objective, that there's one standard of right and wrong, good and bad, and of good character and bad character. However, it's also true that what character looks like depends very much on the situation and the circumstances. So someone trying to be honest while uh, living in Nazi Germany would have be manifesting honesty very differently than, say, someone living in the comforts of uh, 21st century United States. So manifesting character depends on the situation, but I think there's ultimately a core part of character, just like ethics in general, which is more objective. So honesty, the virtue of honesty, that is objectively a good thing to aim at. We should all be aiming at that. What it means to be honest in one situation might look different than it is to be honest in a different situation. So we've been talking about character. The gap part is mostly about self-perception, as I understood it. So the, the reason behind the title is the character gap, the gap between how we actually are yeah. and how we should be. Yeah. So and that, uh, self-perception is involved there, too, because we might think that we are better than we really are. And what I want to suggest in the book is... There's a significant gap between the two for many people. Not everyone. It's a bell curve here. Um, some people are outliers on one side, and they're very virtuous. Some people are outliers on the other side. They're very vicious, so the gap is huge for them. But most of us are somewhere in this middle between, again, where we should be and where we actually are. Now, the way I try and explore that is not by looking at history or current events or the news, although that would give me plenty of data, too. I look at experimental studies in psychology which put people in different situations and then probe their characters. So if you put people in this kind of situation, do they act honestly or not? If you put people in this other kind of situation, do they act cruelly or not? And what you get in, after looking at hundreds and hundreds of these studies is a kind of profile or picture of what character looks like for many people. My takeaway message or lesson from those studies is that we're really a mixed bag. Yeah. We have some good sides to our, our character. So some situations will act very admirably, but then there are also some bad sides to our character, some situations where we'll act very disappointingly. And so we have a ways to go, many of us, myself included, before we can bridge that gap between how we actually are and how we should be. So one consistent finding uh, in all these studies is that we probably have a self-perception that we wouldn't tolerate other people's pains. We would, we would go somewhat far to ameliorate the pain of others. Yet when you introduce other factors, the Milgram prison experiment, 
where an authority figure says, keep giving this subject a shock, even if the figure is saying, no, no, you're hurting me. That really affects people's willingness to induce pain. Or another, if there is an experiment and there is someone else in the room and you hear that someone from outside the room is yowling in abject misery, a big determinant if the person intervenes is how that other person in the room acts. So I guess you would say this means that we could tell ourselves we're good people that would go far to uh, end the suffering of others. But there are a lot of uh, other factors we can introduce to, you know, screw up that self-perception. That, that's exactly right. That's very well put. Uh, so they, in fact, for some of those studies, they ask people beforehand, what would you do if you were in this kind of hypothetical situation? How would you behave? And overwhelmingly, people would say, yeah, I would do the right thing. I would help the person in need, or I wouldn't cause pain to someone in this kind of situation. Then, lo and behold, they run the experiment, and the exact opposite happens. So in the first one, you mentioned the Milgram shock experiments. It wasn't just not alleviating pain. It was actually causing, actively causing pain to an innocent test taker. So you were supposed to administer a test. Every wrong answer, you would turn up a shock dial more and more. So more wrong answers, more shocks. And you could go all the way up to the XXX level, which was clearly signifying a lethal level of shock. Now, the variable you mentioned quite rightly that had a big impact was whether there was an authority figure telling you to keep going. We need these results. You must continue. With that authority figure present, 66% of participants went all the way up to the XXX level and in their minds effectively killed an innocent test taker. Yeah. That's incredibly disturbing. Okay, so and and I guess the reason that we are uh, less moral, have less character is because it's rooted in the fact that we're social animals, right? We're taking these cues from either an authority figure or another person in the room. And so this leads me to yes. right, so this leads me to wonder if we if we ask people would you steal, they they'd say no. But then if you said, all right, what if it was a loaf of bread and your kid was starving? They'd probably say yes, because they understand that externality. Maybe it's just that people don't understand the externality of uh, social pressure. Maybe it's acting on them in ways that they can't articulate until they're there. And so it, does that really have to do with character? Or does that have to do with we're a somewhat more uh, evolved form of primate? Right, good, good. So... Um Towards the end of the book, I start talking about strategies for overcoming the character gap, so trying to become a better person in light of this data that suggests we're not so great. And one of the strategies I focus on there is what I call uh, educating for character, um, so getting the word out. And what that means is when we actually read this psychological research and become more familiar with these results, that can actually, I think, work towards improving our character. Yes. So you're right. Um, we social influence plays a huge role, but what is it playing a role on? It's playing a role on our characters, on how we are currently put together. So we, for example, have a desire to obey authority figures. We might not have appreciated how strong that desire was until we saw studies like the Milgram study. And we read the psychological research and it helps unlock part of our minds that we might not have appreciated beforehand. But now we read the research, we become more familiar with it, and then the hope is, in the future, we'll be more on guard. We'll be more careful. 
will be more critical towards authority figures who are asking us to do things which seem morally problematic. Yeah, you're so, so I think there's a lot of promise there. You're so right. We don't understand it. The premise is if we want to increase our character, we have these studies. You don't realize how much you're influenced by authority figures. It's like, you know, in the year... 1805, if you told someone to stop drinking, they wouldn't understand things like triggers. They wouldn't understand what we know about alcoholism. Or if on a piece of paper you said, uh, you said to someone, will you ingest more calories than you expel? Right. People intellectually would say no. But since we know how the human body uh, reacts to certain tastes, then we understand it more. So you're absolutely right that more education about how we are as people would get us to act better. I think that is I true. think that's a, right. And so, so here's another example. Uh, the other kind of study you mentioned was not helping when there's a stranger present who's not helping. Well, so the in the classic setup of this, you're in a room with a stranger who's not doing anything to help. When you both hear in a in another room someone who's uh, fallen off a ladder, there's a big crash. The person's crying out in pain and uh, asking for help. Well, in that kind of setup, when the stranger in the room with you does nothing. Only 7% of participants offered any help. Yeah. We read this kind of research, and what does it tell us? It's, a, I mean, it's an interesting study, but it goes along this idea of education because the deeper story here is illustrating the power of fear of embarrassment. Again, something we might not have appreciated before, but the psychology discloses to us. So part of the explanation for why people don't help in bystander situations is a kind of underlying fear of embarrassment, that Maybe this stranger or this group of strangers knows something that I don't know, and that's why they're not doing anything. So if I suddenly start leap out of my seat or I run over or I yell, I might look like a fool because I don't understand what's really going on. And so my fear of embarrassment holds me back. Well, you read the research, you learn more about this, and you think, well, um, I didn't appreciate this before, and maybe I shouldn't be so worried about embarrassing myself. Maybe the suffering of someone else is much more important than whether I look like a fool or not. Right. Or maybe whole schools adopt curriculums, uh, curricula that emphasize anti-bullying. Or on college campuses, hell on the subway that I took in today, a New York State-sponsored ad campaign about intervening in instances of sexual harassment or potential sexual abuse. Similar, mm -hmm. similar way to think. It doesn't mean that we weren't good people before, but if you educate about us, maybe we'll become better people because of these deficiencies we don't even know exist. Good. So there's there's kind of the education which involves reading studies and reading books and so forth. But there's a that's not so realistic for many people who are busy. But there's a kind of more subtle education that you're talking about here, which is providing more reminders, having clues or uh, reminders in your environment that help you retrain your focus to what's important. And this has also been found experimentally to make a big difference. So in a study where there was cheating found rampantly amongst participants who were taking a test, that cheating was eliminated if a group of participants first had to recall the Ten Commandments. Cheating disappeared. Uh -huh. Or another group of participants first signed an honor code, pledging their honor not to cheat. So these things provide more reminders about what's right and what's wrong, just like you were the examples you were giving. And then subsequently... People behaved very admirably. Cheating disappeared. In, in that example, did the test takers also not covet thy neighbor's oxen? Did that decline? <laughs> I can't speak to that. <laughs> they didn't look into that part of it.
Christian B. Miller is a professor. In fact, the A.C. Reed professor of philosophy at Wake Forest University. And he is the author of The Character Gap. That's right. He's putting philosophy in action. Thank you, Professor Miller. Thank you so much for having me. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And now the spiel. Dana Lash, NRA spokeswoman, is kind of a cross between Kellyanne Conway and an Uzi with cooler glasses. She has physical beauty on her side. She is charismatic. She spews stats and arguments. But like the Uzi and Kellyanne, she spews stats and arguments with abandon and inaccuracy. Lash was on ABC's This Week talking about mass shootings and laid down some suppressive fire in her verbal battle with George Stephanopoulos. This assertion of hers went by so quickly that Stephanopoulos couldn't check it. That's actually not true. That's actually not true. France had a higher casualty rate in one year than the entire two administrations of Barack Obama, and they're a fifth of our population. But George, here's the biggest point here. France had a higher casualty rate in one year than the eight years of the Obama presidency. In fact, if you define mass shootings as four more dead per shooting, in France in 2015, they had 150 deaths. Though on the American side, in the year she cited, there were 264 deaths. So what is she talking about? Well, she did say casualties, not deaths. I do think most people hear the word casualties. They think deaths, but it means dead or injured. And if you include all the injured in 2015 in France, you do have more dead and injured from mass shootings than during the Obama era. But it's because of one thing. 2015, France, that was the Bataclan theater assault. That was the act of international terrorism, which used guns, but it wasn't exactly relevant to the debate of civilian access to firearms. You take out that one gigantic outlier terrorist attack in the time frame that Lash mentioned, and you have four dead in France to 160 dead in the U.S. I'd like to credit the website PolitiFact for some of this research.
But a singular atypical incident is a horrible rebuttal to George Stephanopoulos' premise, which was, remember, that no country in the world has these attacks with the frequency or the intensity of the United States. So that assertion was full of flaws, but she speaks fast, she speaks confidently, she seemed to answer the question Stephanopoulos was asking. I bet the NRA was proud of their spokeswoman at that moment. I was wondering why she would cite that cherry-picked figure, which wasn't too relevant for what he was asking. I did some research. I found the original assertion was created and spread by the Crime Prevention Research Center. That is an organization whose president and founder is John Lott. John Lott has a doctorate in economics. He's frequently cited by gun enthusiasts for his studies, which back up their worldview. But his studies also can't be duplicated and are indeed often heavily rebutted by established experts who are affiliated with major universities. John Lott wrote a book called More Guns, Less Crime that researchers frequently fault. Why do researchers find fault with his findings? Because they can't find his findings. Lott has an answer to why the researchers fault him. It was in his next book, The Bias Against Guns. So who's right? More guns, more crime? Less guns, less crime? Well, I'd have to throw the red flag on the less guns, less crime just for grammar. It should be fewer guns, less crime. But that aside, all the good researchers, time and time again, in 15 or 30 studies, depending on how you count them, according to such publications as Scientific America and peer-reviewed journals, find less guns, less crime. In 2015, Using stats from the FBI and the Centers for Disease Control, researchers at Boston's Children's Hospital and Harvard found that firearm assaults were 6.8 times more common in the states with the most guns versus in the states with the least. In 2013, Boston University School of Public Health found that if you control for multiple variables, a 1% increase in gun ownership correlates in a state with a 0.9% rise in firearm homicides. So it's not exact, but it's damn close. But still, Lot's rhetoric animates the pro-NRA crowd, Lash, as you heard there, and also Ben Shapiro. Here was Shapiro in yesterday's episode. This one-to-one correlation the left attempts to draw between the number of guns in a particular society and the level of murder in a particular society just does not hold. And that's particularly true for rifles. Actually, the correlation holds. It's a very good correlation for gun deaths. But I'll let Ben go on. And gun ownership owned by a civilian population generally is not a good proxy for crime rate. Gun ownership rates in places like Vermont are extraordinarily high. Vermont has an extraordinarily low crime rate. The same thing is true in New Hampshire. And if you go to other states, some some places, Louisiana, there's very high gun ownership rate. There's very high crime rate. Now, important to note, most of that crime is not taking place in the boonies. Most of that crime is taking place in the major cities, most of which have actual gun control regulations on the books. So I looked up the stats. Vermont and New Hampshire do have low crime rates, but Vermont doesn't have very high gun ownership rates. It is ranked, according to the General Social Survey's trends in gun ownership in the United States, is the 20th highest state in terms of gun ownership. And New Hampshire actually has low gun ownership rates. It's ranked 39th. Louisiana has the highest murder rate in the country and a very high gun ownership rate. Now, as for the question of, is the murder urban or rural? The census does define Louisiana as 76% urban. Here are the murder stats. The state had 554 murders and 176 of them were in New Orleans. 62 in Baton Rouge, 44 in Shreveport, and 16 in Lafayette. Those are the cities. 
There are slightly more murders in the urban areas, but there's more population in the urban areas, three times as much as in the rural areas. Where does Ben Shapiro? Why was he citing Louisiana? Guess what? I looked it up on the Crime Prevention Research Center. There, they assert Louisiana is considered a high homicide state, but most of those homicides are heavily concentrated in the St. Roche, hope I'm not pronouncing that wrong, neighborhood, Elysian Fields Avenue between Brother Martin High School and I-610. In one neighborhood, most of the 554 homicides the state of Louisiana happened in one neighborhood, as I just cited, 2016. It wasn't most, it was 176 in the entire city of New Orleans. And I want to kill you with stats. Let's just say Crime Prevention Research Center was wrong. Let's continue, Ben Shapiro. Let's go international. It doesn't really hold. It doesn't even hold in Europe, by the way, where Norway has many more guns per civilian than Britain does. And Britain has, a th- has twice as bad a murder rate. Here are the actual stats. Firearm-related deaths per 1,000. Norway, 1.75. Britain, 0.23. What's Ben Shapiro talking about? Sure, the vast majority of Norwegian gun deaths are suicide. Their gun suicide rate is 10 times that of Britain. But their murder rate is almost double. So more guns, more death. Duh. By the way, when we're talking about these two countries, I don't mean to laugh, we're talking about murder. But gun deaths in Norway, last three years, five, three, and five. In the UK, it's in the 20s and teens. And by the way, in case you were wondering, I made sure to exclude that terrorist attack in Norway that killed 71 people a few years ago, because including such an outlier terrorist attack would be dishonest, and it's not how fair people win arguments. So I guess with everything that you've heard so far, you can say, okay, the gun advocates got some stats wrong, and that's definitely a problem. Also wrong is that it took me, Mary, and Pierre a cumulative 20 person hours to rebut those statements. It took the speakers, I don't know, 45 cumulative seconds to utter them. And it's taking you, I don't know, what's this, going on 10 minutes, 12 minutes for a rebuttal? That is a problem. Rebutting a falsehood's a lot harder than just uttering it. But then there's this. Back to Dana Lash. She gave this critique of the media which moved from misinformation to malfeasance. She was on CNN and host Alison Camerata was giving her a hard time because she quite famously a few days ago made the statement that many in the media love mass shootings because they're good for ratings. So part of the back and forth between the CNN host and Lash went like this. I do think that many in the media do because they like the ratings aspect of it. And that's true because it's wall-to-wall coverage. They put the murderer's face up on on loop, on on televisions all across America, more than they discuss even the victims or survivors. That individual's name has been mentioned and is still mentioned on your network. Media keep mentioning the perpetrator's name, and that inspires copycats. Now, I have to tell you, I believe that's true. The media, in my opinion, shouldn't have a total blackout on the perpetrator's name. You have to, as a matter of journalism, reference the name once or twice early on in the coverage. But doing it excessively, research shows, threatens to create a cult. I've talked about this on The Gist, and on The Gist, I almost never mention shooters' names. Almost never. I'm really cognizant of this. So Lash included that point, which is, I think, a grounded critique inside her overall outrageous claim that the media likes mass shootings. However, the media isn't just CNN and the New York Times. These days, we're all the media, social media. And if you're Dana Lash, specifically, you have your own nationally syndicated radio show. So out of curiosity, I went back. I listened to the Dana show on the day when the Republican baseball game was attacked by a gunman who was a Bernie Sanders supporter. So I wondered, with this fact, 
which deserves to be aired, certainly, would this fact affect Lash's stated preference for the media not constantly saying the name of a shooter, making him more famous? So, to show you what I found, I will make an exception of my policy of not airing the names of shooters, or rather, I will allow Dana Lash to make the exception. A man from Belleville, Illinois, James Hodgkinson, according to law enforcement officials, On the Dana Lash show that day, by our count, Lash aired the name of the shooter, said the name of the shooter 14 times. Because when the story wasn't one that she wished would go away, but one that served her political point, one that she could chew over and point to as a confirmation of her worldview, then she certainly needed everyone to know everything about this deranged individual. This guy's a Bernie Sanders supporter. Bernie Sanders' campaign confirmed that this guy volunteered on their campaign. I'm not blaming all Bernie Sanders supporters. That's like saying all murderers wear shoes, shoes are bad. But I'm saying that there is a pattern amongst the far left of violence. Well, to be fair to Lash, she did criticize CNN for not just saying the name, but said, and her quote was, you're still saying the name days after the shooting. But as Lash was repeatedly naming the Republican baseball game shooter, she reached back into the past six and a half years and talked about, by name, Gabby Gifford's attempted assassin. Even when Loeffner came out, it was proven that he was a leftist. Even when it came out that the Portland stabber was a leftist. Let's go ahead and look back and see who's caused the most bloodshed, because I guarantee you it's not going to be the right. The New York Times recently did a profile of Lash headlined, the National Rifle Association's telegenic warrior. Maybe, but Dana Lash is also something else. She's an unabashed hypocrite. That's it for today's show. Pierre Bienname, just producer, cannot remember the name to the United States ambassador to South Korea. Mary Wilson, just senior producer, cannot remember the name of the chief engraver of the United States. Guess why? The position's vacant. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, notes that even though gun ownership in Norway is much lower than gun ownership in the United States, the gunner rate is much higher. In the United States, 386 babies per million were named gunner. In Norway, I'm going to say it was most of them. The gist, funny story. So at my son's preschool a few years ago, there were two sets of twins, all boys, and each of the set of twins had the same names. There was a set of uh, twins where one kid was named Gunner and the other kid was named Guy, and that was the same as the other set of kids. Now, both of the Gunners were sweet, good-tempered kids, but one of those guys, he was, he was, he was a problem child, you know, these kids? And, and he would convince his brother to be naughty, too. And what he would do, this, this guy and with his brother in tow, he'd go around, he'd dump all the other kids' blocks, you know, every day, and his twin would just stand by, and it was not a good situation. So one day, when the bad twin was doing this, and his brother was going along with it. The other set of twins come up and they say, stop it. And from that moment forward, the bad twins didn't dump anyone's blocks. So it just goes to show you, the only thing that could stop a bad guy with a gunner is a good guy with a gunner. Upuru depuru dupuru, and thanks for listening.